The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We systematically study the Word of God here on Sundays. We're in the book of Acts. We find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles or your apps on your phone, iPad, whatever you're using, Acts chapter 19, we're going to begin this morning at verse 23. Acts 19, 23. Paul is on a second missionary journey. He has uh, been booted out of every town he's gone to. Now he begins a third journey, and as he does, he goes to the city of Ephesus. He's already done that, and he's headed back to check on some of the churches, beginning in Acts 19.23. About that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, and he said, Men... You know our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this guy Paul is persuaded and turned a number of people saying that their gods made with hands are no no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from a magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. And they began crying out, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord to the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. Christianity in a hostile culture. I mean, that's what we're looking at. Uh, This isn't describing our nation today, although... Uh, It does somewhat, but it's really describing what's taking place in the first century. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this collision, the collision of uh, the culture of Ephesus with the gospel and Christianity, Father, we're reminded that in our day and age, we have that same collision. And we pray that you teach us how to navigate it in Christ's name. Amen. The collision in Acts 19 was unavoidable. It was going to happen. You begin messing with a man's pocketbook and you know there's going to be a problem and that's what's taking place. The culture is changing because Christianity is invading cities and countries where up until now it's not been known. And when Christianity invades these areas, there's a change. The influence upon the culture is great. The culture is changing and not everybody's happy, especially those whose pocketbooks are being affected. Collisions. I mean, we're familiar with them. They happen all the time. It may be a collision on a football field that looks something like this. It may be a collision uh, in an accident of some kind. Uh, Parents and kids have collisions. This is a kid who actually, that's actually a paint can down there. You imagine the collision that took place after that? Collisions, they take place in our marriages, took place between uh, this couple. It's our older, familiar couple. We pop up on a regular basis, and they had a collision one day. It happened because the old man had a collision in Home Depot. What happened is uh, the old guy's pushing his cart around Home Depot, and he collided with another cart. It was a young guy. The old guy said, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'm not paying attention. I'm looking for my wife, and I- I'm not sure where I was going. So the young guy said, that's okay. It's quite a coincidence. I'm looking for my wife, too. I can't find her. I'm getting a little desperate. The old guy said, well, maybe we can help each other. What does your wife look like? 
And the young guy said, well, she's 24 years old, blonde hair, blue eyes, long legs, just won a beauty contest. What does your wife look like? He asked the old guy. The old guy said, it doesn't matter. Let's go find your wife. (laughs) When he turned around, she was standing right behind him. His funeral services are now pending. Unavoidable collisions. I mean, they happen. Sometimes we end up in these collisions, and that's really what's happening in our culture. But we find ourselves colliding with our culture. It may be over the issue of abortion. It may be over the issue of same-sex marriage. It may be over the issue of what's happening in schools. It may be the issues that we see in our nation right now. But there's this unavoidable collision taking place between the evangelical church and the culture we live in. It's happening around us. It's happening to us right now. And when Christianity collides with a hostile culture, trouble follows. It follows. Now, I have to say, some of what we're experiencing is self-inflicted. Because there are believers out there, followers of Jesus, who use mean words, who use angry rhetoric to confront the culture. And I'm convinced that's the worst thing you can do. In fact, let me issue a warning right now. When you are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, be careful what you say. The tongue of today, it's not face-to-face, it's not often we talk face-to-face anymore, but your tongue today is what you say on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It reveals your heart. So be careful with your words, words that are spoken, words that are written. And as we see that, we see that in a hostile culture that Paul was speaking to as well as the one we live in, we can be deemed as intolerant, judgmental, and any number of things. You're familiar with the way Google works. I mean, Google is impressive in what they do, and everybody, it's a word that we're all familiar with now, we Google everything. Google has the answer to everything, but you know the way it works. I mean, the, the, the answers that come up the most often, you begin to type something in and it fills in the blank for you, right? Here's an interesting thing. This actually reveals and shows you the way the culture thinks of us as a church right now. Let's roll that video.
search this past week. Just Google it yourselves. Why are Christians so when you go down the alphabet? Those are the most popular results of searches. That's how we're perceiving the culture. If you are a Christ follower, disciple of Jesus, that's how you're perceiving the culture. So how do we as believers live in a culture that is hostile towards us? How, how do we respond to that? And how do we redeem the culture? We don't want to reject the culture we live in. We don't want to receive and become part of that. But how do we redeem the culture around us? That's We're going to look at Paul's example. We're going to see how we can accomplish that and how we can do it. Well, it begins quite simply with Paul saying uh, the, he identifies the problem. The problem is money. I mean, that's the major problem here. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Concerning the way. If you write in your Bible, circle the word way. It's the only time Christianity is described uh, with this terminology. It, we, we see here that uh, it's described in that way. Annette, do, do we lose power back there? Can you give me something on the screens? Next one. There we go. Thank you. The problem is money. Now, where's this word way come from? So there arose no small disturbance among the way, meaning Christians. Well, the way refers to the way of salvation. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the way is those who follow Christ. The way is also the way we who are Christ's followers live our lives. I mean, we live our lives not as being part of the world, but in, in, in being in the world, but not of the world. In fact, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. But be transformed by renewing your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So what we see is if we're a Christ follower, we are part of the way. The way of following Jesus, the way of living our lives. And that's what happened here. Don't miss the obvious. What's happening here, lives are being changed, hearts are being transformed, transformed hearts produce changed behaviors. And so there's no need to buy idols now. To use today's terminology, sales are trending downward quickly. I mean, that's what's happening. People are coming to know Christ. They become Christ's followers. They're saved. Their hearts are changed. And they, longer, they no longer want to buy these idols. And so everybody's upset. This guy, Demetrius, he's, he's in turmoil. I mean, he is, he's running around like Chicken Little with the head cut off, saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. It's bad, and it's going to get a whole lot worse. Don't miss the obvious. Salvation leads to changed lives. When you come to faith in Christ, your life should be radically changed. I mean, just some examples. You move from being hateful to loving, from being immoral to being pure, from being self-serving to being servants, from being bitter to being kind, from drunkenness to sobriety, from greediness to generosity, from coveting to being grateful. See, God doesn't send us to obedience school. God sends us to the hospital to get a new heart, and that transformation takes place, and our behavior changes. So here's a question you have to ask yourself. If I haven't changed, is it because my heart has not been transformed? If you're still hateful and bitter and drunken and impure, has your heart really changed? I, 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 I did this sermon on Friday of this week and wrote those things out, and I'm thinking, man, it's so easy to fall into that pattern, isn't it? But a changed heart, a transformed heart, produces changed behavior. If our behavior hasn't changed, maybe it's because our hearts have not been transformed. 
And so my encouragement to you is to make sure that your heart has been transformed. Well, what's happening is, if you look at verse 24, this Demetrius guy, he's all upset because they're not buying idols anymore. I mean, he's all upset. He gathers the workmen together and he's going to wave the banner. The real issue is money. The emotional issue is religion. You want to get folks in a stir. You don't talk about religion, politics, and you don't mess with their money. And Paul is doing everything. I mean, he's doing all this stuff. And so he said, men of Ephesus, we've got a problem here. Our livelihood depends upon this business. And this guy, Paul, comes in and he teaches our idols are not really gods at all. In fact, they're just made from hands and they're not really true things. And our our whole trade is going to fall into disrepute. And eventually Artemis won't even be worshipped anymore. And Ephesus is going to go down the drains. All the trade is going to go away. Our city will no longer be known as the capital place for that. And and we're going to worship idols. Aren't you glad we don't worship idols anymore? If you're part of Hinduism or Buddhism, this is a Buddhist temple. These are Hindu idols. Uh, these are actually worshipped today. These come right out of today. I've been to India actually on three different occasions. I've got dear friends here who are Hindu that we minister to and work with and, and, and love. And uh, they've got a house with idols in it, worship idols. Aren't you glad we don't worship idols in America? <laughs> right. What are the American idols? Not the show. What are American idols, though? <laughs> what about these? What about these things? Everybody wants a mansion. We all want money. Uh, that Mercedes is something. These dudes, I don't know what to say about them. I typed in buffed men, and that came up. I typed up buffed women. Oh, my gosh, they have women that were, like, all steroided up and stuff. <laughs> It's awful. You don't want to do it. I mean, they weren't nasty. It was just, ah. For all of you women who are weightlifters, I apologize. Uh, but you don't look like that. You look good. I'm digging a deep hole up here. These are idols. I mean, let's face it, guys. These are the idols of our culture. We want to work, we want to make more, we want to get more, we want to achieve more, and so we'll do anything. Man, we'll sacrifice anything. We'll sacrifice so we can get stuff, we'll sacrifice so we can get more. I put that picture up there because, you know, one of the idols is either physical fitness or sex and sexuality. Take your pick. Idols of our culture. Temple of Artemis looked like this. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, to your left is a rendering of that uh, temple, and to your right are the runes in Ephesus as they. When we were in Ephesus a number of years ago, this is what you see. This is what you go and observe. It looked like that initially, but now if you go to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, uh, this is what it looks like today. So this is one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, architecturally and construction-wise, uh, construction-wise, had to be quite a magnificent place as we look at our friends down here. And he's saying our trade's going to suffer. It's a problem. We're going to go broke. Uh, Ephesus is not going to be significant anymore. Artemis is going to go away. Nobody's going to worship in this temple. By the way, Artemis, the Latin name was Diana. The Romans called it Diana, Temple of Diana, Temple of Artemis. Same place, same thing. She was a goddess of fertility. And uh, so they worshipped her. And it was a desire to uh, see the crops uh, produced, desire for uh, kids to be born. And that's why you went there and worshipped Artemis or Diana. And so he says, we've got a problem. This guy, Paul's coming to town. He's saying our idols are not really gods. We've got to do something. And so he whips them into a frenzy. He whips them into a frenzy. And in verse 28, they, they are filled with rage. Their rage is not about Artemis. Their rage is about money. 
Their worship, their, their rage is not about worship and devotion to their God. Their, their, their rage is because they're in our pocketbook. He's coming after our money. He's affecting our lifestyle. He's affecting everything we have. And let's face it, that's what people get mad at. They get mad at that. We tend to, we tend to elevate that way more than we need to because God is our provider. He's our provider. Pastors are as bad as anybody. I mean, as bad as anybody when it comes to money and dealing with it. You remember the story of the two guys who uh, had their plane crash and they were able to swim to deserted South Pacific Island. They got to the island, they walked around the island and all they had was water and a few things there. And one guy sat down and the other guy screaming, what are you going to do? We're going to die. There's only water. There's no food. We're going to die. He said, no, we're not. I make $250,000 a week. He said, no, we're going to die. He said, no, we're not. I make $250,000 a week. And he said, no, there's no, there's no food here. We only have water. We're going to die in a matter of weeks. No, we're not. I make $250,000 a week. You idiot. We're on a deserted island. We're going to die a slow death. And he says, you don't understand. I make $250,000 a week. I tithe. My pastor is going to find us. I mean, that, that's the issue here. It's an issue over money. It's an issue over that problem. And so uh, what happens is there's a riot in the city. I mean, it, it's so parallel to what's taking place in our nation today. And so there's this great riot in the city. Uh, that's great. Who put that in there? Just hunger pains, hunger pains. The problem is money, and then he moves on to the protection of Paul. So, so here's Paul, and he wants to go, and they, they, they capture two of his friends, Gaius and Aristarchus, in verse 29. And in verse 30, Paul said he wanted to go to the assembly. Disciples begged him not to go. His friends, Asiarchs, they were probably leaders of the council in Ephesus, repeatedly urged him not to venture to the theater. They know if Paul goes in the theater where this riot's taking place, they're going to tear him limb to limb. And so they beg Paul not to go, and he's protected by these folks, his disciples as well as some other folks. So what happens after that is pretty interesting. We move from the protection of Paul to the people. I mean, what are these people expecting? What are they experiencing? What are they doing? Well, the people are in mass hysteria. I mean, it's much like we've seen the streets of our cities in the last several months. So then, verse 32, some were shouting one thing. Some were shouting another thing. The assembly was in confusion. And the majority of the people did not know for what cause they had come together. I mean, there's a riot taking place. Everybody's out there screaming and hollering, throwing things, burning things up. And so everybody from the city goes out. They participate, but they don't know why they're there. They don't know why they're there. Reminds me of teenagers. Sorry about that, guys. Some of my teenagers over here. You know, it's a, when, I, when I was a kid, I'd want to do something. And my dad would say, well, uh, he'd say, why do you want to do that? Well, all my friends are doing it. And so every dad in the world then says, if all your friends were going to, same bridge, same dad everywhere in the world. You're going to jump off of it too? And I would look at him and I'd want to say, you bet. But I was bright as night. I said, no, dad, I wouldn't do that. I'm not going to do that because my friends are doing blah, 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 blah. Well, that's what's happening here. I mean, they show up and, and, and they're, they, they don't even know why they're there. I mean, I love that verse. They, they show up, they're rioting, and they don't even know why they're rioting. So, so they put this guy, uh, Alexander, up, and they recognize Alexander's a Jew. He's not going to speak of Artemis, and so they shut him up. It, it says in, uh, in verse 33, they put Alexander up. When they recognize verse 34, uh, that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from the people, and they shouted for two hours. 
great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. They're just screaming. I mean, can you imagine us screaming anything for two hours? Football game, probably you do that. But I mean, other than something like that, I mean, they're just going great as Artemis, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, they don't even know why they're shouting. Everybody else is doing it, so we're going to do it as well. It's mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. And then God does the amazing thing. God protects his people. He protects Paul. He protects Gaius. He protects Aristarchus. Protects the disciples. How does he do it? Does he zap them with a lightning bolt? Does he have Paul get up and speak in self-defense? Nah. He uses a pagan leader to accomplish his purposes. By the way, we saw the same thing two weeks ago when we say the church at Corinth. Paul's in Corinth. There's a riot breaking out. There's a guy named Galalia. He stands up and says, what are you screaming about? If, 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 uh, if, if our God is true, then he's going to win out anyway, so let's be quiet. So what happens here? Look at verse 35. Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image that came down from heaven since then? These are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Basically saying, chill. Just chill, guys. I mean, if Artemis is truly a god and we're worshiping this god and, and she is who she says she is and th- things are right with her, then basically we need to just chill and let her defend herself. We need to do that. We've got lights out. Um, so, do you guys put lights in that last for a while when you... Okay, good. Shouldn't say everything comes to your mind when you're preaching. That's not a good thing. So, since then, there's undeniable facts. Keep calm and do nothing rash. He says, you, you just settle down. Settle down. Because you know what? The Romans are going to find out about this. You brought men who are not robbers of temples and are blasphemers of the goddess. These guys are innocent. They're not guilty. If Demetrius wants to do anything, we've got courts that handle it. Verses 38 and 39. Indeed, we're in danger of causing a riot. And uh, the Romans are going to come after us. So just be quiet. So what do they do? Verse 41. After saying this, he said, go home. And they went home. Just like that. Well, after they'd been shouting for two hours, they went home. So here, what is this about? I mean, what, what is the deal here? I mean, Luke has all these episodes he could choose from in the first century. Why does he pick this? What's he trying to teach us here? Well, I think there's some good lessons for us. Some great lessons for us. Not good lessons, great lessons for us. The first lesson is this. God is sovereign trust him sovereign means he reigns and rules so trust him god uses a pagan ruler to protect his people he uses a pagan ruler to protect his people if god is sovereign that means he is in control of the universe we need to trust him one of my favorite verses is proverbs 21 1 the heart of the king is in the hand of the lord and like rivers of water he channels it in whichever direction he wishes this is the niv i just quoted for you the new american standard the heart of the king is in the hand of the lord do you hear that some of you wring your hands some of you live in fear some of you live in bitterness and anger and say look at what our world's coming to look what our country's coming to I don't know what tomorrow holds. It's going to get worse. Read the end of the book in Revelation. It is going to get worse, a lot worse. 
But if God is sovereign, why do we live in fear and anxiety and worry? If your life is consumed with fear, anxiety, and worry, it basically reveals what you think about your God. It's what you think about your circumstances rather than him. You know, is it natural to have fear, anxiety, and worry at times? Sure, it's natural at times. Sure it is. But then you press into the Savior. You guys were here when I was first diagnosed two years ago. I mean, there was, there was worry. There was anxiety. I mean, you dealt with that. And for three months, it, it haunted me. But by God's grace, pressing into him, you guys lifting up my hands, by his grace, it dissipated. If you live that way continuously, though, Ultimately, it's saying, you don't really trust me. You don't really believe I'm in control. You believe this world is controlled by someone else. And when you look at what he does here, he uses, I don't think we're going to see this guy. I mean, he's saying Artemis is a god. I don't think we're going to see this town clerk in heaven. So God used this pagan town clerk to protect Paul and advance the gospel. Because Paul's protected, the gospel's advanced. So the first thing I see here, and the first application we can make, God is sovereign. Quit worrying. Quit trying to be the master of the universe and trust him. Trust him. There was a lady who had to make a major business decision. She decided she would get up early one morning, walk through the park, clear her mind before she went to business, to, to her business. I've got a quote by her. She says, one morning as I was fretting about an important decision, I took a walk to clear my head, to talk with God. Across a park lawn, the park lawn was a beautiful golden retriever frolicking alongside his loving master. I thought to myself, if I could only be as carefree as that dog, to play and to run freely, knowing that your master will provide for all your needs. And she said, I stopped right there. I stopped in my thoughts, as though the Holy Spirit pricked my heart, convicting me. And it was like he was speaking these words to me. My precious child, do you not know that I am your faithful master? Don't you believe that I care for you more than any earthly master would care for a dog? That you too can run free of worry. I am the good master, the good shepherd. Trust in me. Some of you need to hear that today. Your life is filled with worry and fear and anxiety. When you've got a good master, a good shepherd, you can press into and trust with the day. In Matthew 6, he says, what does worry do? It doesn't add a single cubit to your life. As you trust him and lean into him and press into him, you recognize that indeed he is who he claims to be. Second verse, blessed are the peacemakers. As I read through this passage in heaven just preached two weeks ago in Corinth where these two pagan guys are peacemakers so that Paul and the gospel can be advanced. I was reminded of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And his words are blessed are the peacemakers. Some of you have the opportunity to be peacemakers. It may be a peacemaker in your family because of some odds that are there, somebody being at odds with one another. It may be in a peacemaker between friends who are at odds. Maybe a peacemaker between some in-laws that you haven't spoken to in a long time. Maybe it's being a peacemaker between folks in your neighborhood, folks that are dear friends. You can be a peacemaker. God has called you to that. 
to be a peacemaker. I, I spend a lot of time mediating. If I find out you're at odds with somebody else in the body, we're going to meet because I'm convinced when brothers and sisters are at war that the father's heart is broken. When brothers and sisters are at war, the father's heart is broken. God desires unity. Unity among our body. Unity among believers. And so we'll mediate that. We'll get it right. We'll we'll make sure that God is honored in that. You are called to be a peacemaker. Let Let me tell you where it starts. At home. At home. Some of you, uh, you need to make peace at home between a husband and a wife, between sons and daughters. Because there's not peace in your family, not peace in your house. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know how that starts? It starts by saying, I'm sorry. Uh, when we did House of Cards, it was a series we did four summers ago. We, I'll never forget, I had folks turn to one another and say, some of you have never heard these words from a spouse in a long time, so I want you to turn to one of them and say, I, I'm sorry, I've got a lady down here in tears, and that's the first time in 15 years my husband has ever said, I'm sorry. It's not too hard. In fact, speak it out to me right now. Yeah, you can uh, just say, I'm sorry. Say it, out, say it out loud. I'm sorry. Was that so hard? Some of you haven't uttered those words in a long time. Now, if you're sitting with your spouse right now or a friend you've come with or maybe a son or a daughter, why don't you just turn to them and say, I'm sorry. You can get those words out. I'm telling you. Just tell them right now. I'm sorry. Yeah. How hard was that? I mean, really, how hard was that? Some of you, some of you, you, you can't. I, I love the guy who, who said this. He said, he, he said, I married Miss Wright a year ago. I just didn't know her first name was always, always right. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. I love Calvin and Hobbes. When Charles Schultz quit doing Peanut and Irma Bombeck died and Calvin and Hobbes quit, I had to start reading theology. I mean, I didn't know anywhere to go. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin says to Hobbes, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. Hobbes suggests maybe you should apologize to her. Calvin thinks for a moment and then says, I keep hoping there's a different solution. <laughs> Some of us live our lives that way. God has called you to be a peacemaker. He's called you to live and walk in forgiveness, not bitterness. And finally, these words. If you are a believer, a Christian, in a hostile culture, the culture is buttoned against us. Don't be shocked. Peter puts it this way. Beloved, don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal among you. It comes as testing as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. So that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled in the name of Christ, you're blessed. Really? If you're reviled in the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Christians or Christianity and Christians in a hostile culture will be opposed, is what Peter's saying. Hey, you stand against abortion, don't be surprised when you're accused of not caring about women. You stand against same-sex marriage, uh, don't be surprised if you're called a homophobe and bigoted. If you say from John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you say Jesus is the only way to know the Father, don't be surprised when you're called intolerant and narrow-minded. Jesus said, if they hated me in John 15, they're going to hate you. And so if you live in a hostile culture to Christianity and it's opposed to you, recognize, then don't be surprised when difficult things come your way. 
I'm the eternal optimist. I love today and tomorrow is going to get better. I, I mean, I am. That's the way God's wired me. But when I look at the culture we live in, we're in a downhill slide. When we look at the culture we live in, it's becoming more and more hostile towards evangelical believers. We've become the intolerant, narrow-minded, judgmental homophobes, as you saw in the Google. So what do we do with that? We don't want to reject culture. We don't want to receive and live in the culture and become just like the culture. How do you redeem the culture? That's the question we have to be asking. So let me give you some suggestions. Don't just scream about abortion. Do something about abortion. Hope Pregnancy Center community sees thousands of women every year. Give some money to them. Volunteer for them. Foster some kids. We've got a lot of folks in here who adopt kids. Just don't scream against something. Do something about it. Put your money where your mouth is. Do something about it. Just don't scream and holler, but respond in some way. Here's an example. 80% of the men and women who go together to see an ultrasound. So you've got a pregnant girl and you have her husband, but more than likely her boyfriend. If they go to Hope Pregnancy Center in our community, Temple, Belton, Colleen, Harker Heights, Coppers Cove, if they go together and see an ultrasound, 80% of them will keep their babies. 80%, 8 out of 10. If not, it's less than 20%. So we need nurses to man ultrasounds. We need doctors to oversee that. We need money to buy ultrasounds. I'm on the advisory board of Hope Pregnancy Center. So just don't scream about abortion. Put your money where your mouth is. Give them some time. Volunteer. Same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage. I mean, the scriptures are clear. I I think, even as the eternal optimist, I I think what's coming is going to be worse than what we've seen now. I I think the next step against churches is going to be this. You won't do a same-sex marriage. We're going to take away your nonprofit status. I I, I think that's what will happen next. And then I think over time, I I don't think in my career, but could be, but I think probably in the guys that follow me here, I, I think if they won't do it, they'll probably be fined. And I think maybe in the future they may go to jail. I don't know. I don't know. So what do you do about that? Well, we can scream and holler and kick, and, or we can do a number of things, get involved in legislative action. But here's what's more important. Why, why don't you get involved in getting to know someone who's a homosexual and spend time with them? This past Thursday, we had a gentleman, one of my friends from South Africa, when we were in there. I preached in his church when he was here. Uh, this week, he spoke to the Thursday morning men. And uh, as Eddie spoke to us, it was a marvelous testimony of what God had done in his life. Uh, At age 38, he came to know Jesus Christ. His life was radically changed. For the first 38 years of his life, or from age 16 on, he became one of the leaders of the gay movement in South Africa. At 38, he was radically saved. He was married about a year and a half later. He has two grown kids. He's been ministry, vocational ministry ever since that time. Radically transformed by the gospel. I hear people crying, man, we don't do prayer in the schools anymore. I understand that, but let me tell you what's more important. You pray with your kids at home? Do you? I hear prayer in the schools, man. Our nation's gone to hell in a handbasket. We don't pray in schools anymore. Is it the school's responsibility to teach your kids spiritual things or yours as a mom and a dad? You want to know what's unraveling in Ferguson and what's unraveling in Baltimore and what's unraveling in our nation with divorce rates and everything else that's spiraling within the church and outside, the biggest issue 
The biggest issue is the heart of man. That's the issue. We can throw more money at it. We can throw more education at it. We can throw more legislature at it. We can throw all that stuff at it. But unless hearts are changed, like my friend from South Africa, behavior won't change. It's one heart, one soul, one man, one woman, one boy, one girl at a time. That's how you change a culture. Here's Paul in a hostile culture. And all of a sudden it's changing. People don't want to buy idols anymore. Because they don't believe those things are God's. And in the midst of that change, there's opposition. But the sovereign God of the universe protects him. And he goes on and the gospel advances. And more lives are changed. God has given us a great privilege. We're a large church in a small town. And the result of that is we have men and women who are impacting our communities. Temple, Belton, Slato, Rogers, Cameron... Academy, Harker Heights, Belton, Troy. And I say to God be the glory. Keep doing it and keep honoring the Savior. Because in the midst of a hostile culture, we can represent the Savior well. And we can see him accomplish great things through us if we're faithful. That's how you redeem a culture. That's how you redeem the world we live in. Amen? Let's go do a groundbreaking and pray for our new building after I pray here. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the power of the word. And God, I pray if anyone's here and they don't see life change, that they'll look at their heart and make sure it's been transformed. And for those of us that have been speaking mean words, angry words of rhetoric, and not, I pray for forgiveness for us for those of us who need to be peacemakers in our own homes or with others, let us fulfill that role. The more anything else, Father, let us worship you, the sovereign Lord of the universe. In your son's name we pray. Amen.